This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So at, at low frequencies, sound struggles to get between the gaps of these very large uprights because the, this gap's a bit too small and it gets constrained. And so you get this bass boost. Where at high frequency, it's easier for it to disappear down the gap because the sound of the sound wave is smaller than the gap. So first, you know, first bounce, half the energy is gone because about half the area is, is air. Effectively, it's not stone. And so it decays away much faster. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. For decades, Stonehenge, the mysterious prehistoric circle of stones built on the Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire, has left scientists scratching their heads. Who exactly built it and what was it used for? In the latest attempt to get to the bottom of this mystery, a team of engineers based at the University of Salford have 3D printed a scale model of the ancient monument. They investigated the effect its unique structure would have had on conversations, rituals and even music. Jason Goodyear, commissioning editor of BBC Science Focus magazine, spoke to Professor Trevor Cox, the acoustic engineer, heading up the study to find out more. So um, your current project on Stonehenge is all about the sonic and acoustic properties of Stonehenge. So I think that's really interesting because um, usually the, the research on Stonehenge is focused on the astrological position of it or, or what potentially it means is it was it a calendar was it used for rituals or whatever so where did the idea to study the the acoustic properties of Stonehenge actually come from well there's been a few people have looked into it in the past there's a whole field called archaeoacoustics which is the you know archaeological right. of uh, you know the acoustics of archaeological sites um and i guess what motivated me was people were publishing about what the acoustics were like in the current site, but of course it's a ruin. And I, I used my sort of architectural acoustic knowledge to think, well, it would have been very different back in the day. And that was the kind of nugget of sort of thought to investigate this. And I think it's also, you know, it's very easy to think about it very visually and all sort of the, you know, the problems of how do you construct this site. But if you think about use of this site, I mean, just think of a ritual that we have nowadays that doesn't involve sound. I mean, it would be very surprising if they weren't in there speaking, singing, playing instruments of some form. And as soon as you have a, a surfaces that reflect sound, you you have, you know, the music and the speech being enhanced. And that's what we're investigating. 
Sure. So I was wondering, um, this the whole concept of it, and now you've explained it, it does seem fairly, yeah, an obvious thing to want to know. But to me, it was um, sort of like, oh, it's something I'd never thought of. Are there any sort of precedents in other parts of the world about other monuments or, or of this kind that with, with interesting acoustic properties? I guess the classic one in architectural acoustics would be amphitheatres, which have been studied and are, are supposed to have these amazing mythical acoustic properties. So they've been very thoroughly studied. And there was a study many years ago looking at um, burial mounds and looking at how the acoustics within those might have affected people's behaviour. And you've got stuff across in Mexico looking at Mayan pyramids. So there's been little bits here and there, but no one has looked at stone circles before and no one has tried to apply this, this method of uh, acoustic scale modelling to, to stone stone circles and prehistoric mon monuments. So uh, what, one sort of immediate challenge that struck me is um, in its current, it's sort of very, I don't know how many stones there are in total, but there aren't so many standing up now. So how can we be, how, how do you go about reconstructing, accurately reconstructing what this would have looked like thousands of years ago well the first thing is an acoustics professor is not to do it myself but to talk to the archaeologists <laughs> because i'm not the expert and uh, you need to uh, you know really need to tap into the people who know so there's been lots as you can imagine of archaeological studies at stonehenge and there's been various you know papers that outline what they thought used to happen because we think of stonehenge as being a uh, you know one fixed thing but it went through many stages even before it started to a uh, bit started to go missing um so in fact you know the, the first thing was a very large stone circle maybe 100 meters across back in sort of 2900 bc I mean, the model we're looking at is much, you know, I say much younger, but 2200 BC, it's still pretty old, um, when there was 157 stones. And you're right, there's quite a lot which are either lying on the floor or actually completely missing. Um, so Historic England had, did, had done a reconstruction of this, uh, of the monument in different states when it was actually putting together its new visitor centre a few years back. And we use that as a basis, which is based on some of the sort of latest archaeological evidence for how the stone circles may have been in the past. And it's kind of, the, you know, I'm not an archaeological expert, but it's that kind of thing where you find a hole, you you know, you presume that hole had something in it, <laughs> you know, these kind of things. And you look at stereography, so you're looking at, you know, which bits lie on top of other things and uh, work out the order of when things have happened. But there is some, un you know, quite a lot of uncertainty about how it was configured and in what way over the years. Yeah, so you, you mentioned there that it, it was a kind of, um, it was built out over many, many years and had different configurations. So we'll go back back to that in a bit because that's something I think is really interesting. But um, so just going through the sort of process of how, of how you went through this. So I believe you used um, 3D laser scanners at, at the site or that's what, where the data, original data for, for the model came from. Yeah, so Historic England had done this uh, very remarkable laser scanning. So they had detailed knowledge of all the stones that they had used in the reconstruction. And unfortunately, I started off with their... Uh, you know their nice software version of the of of Stonehenge geometry. I didn't have to reconstruct it myself, so I was given a model where all the stones were in where they should have been in various configurations. But then you have the problem of physically making them, um, and 
you know, it's 157 stones. And we sort of started off thinking, well, we'll 3D print them. And then we worked out it would take six months to 3D print them. And that was sort of kind of a bit impractical. Uh, you know, even this sort of trivial task of chopping up the, 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 the computer-aided design, the CAD model, into all the 157 stones is quite a laborious task, as I found out myself. So we ended up Sometimes we 3D printed them when they were unique. And when there were ones which are quite similar, we actually made a sort of archetype and made uh, copies of it. And we, what we did was made a silicon mold and then we cast it. And that was so we could make a lot much quicker is how we actually went about making it. How did you go about um, choosing the material that you made it from? Because uh, I presume the, 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 at least the surface texture of a material has a big impact on, on its acoustic properties. So the thing about acoustic scale modeling is as soon as you say, I'm going to work at one to 12 scale, as we did, you have to work at 12 times the frequency. So you're not trying to get exactly the same material. What you want is the same acoustic properties, but 12 times the frequency. So in, in a, you know, my, the middle of my speech range might be about 1,000 hertz. In the model, that would be 12,000 hertz. So you're trying to match acoustic properties across these two frequency ranges. So a lot of people say, why didn't you make out stone? Well, you don't. You just need to have it have a material which has a similar property at 12 times the frequency. And actually, if you take something like 3D printed plastic, uh, print a hollow of it and fill, backfill the hollow with concrete, you've got something really hard and impervious. And that's what stone is, which absorbs very little. We also sprayed it with car paint as well to fill all the little pores up, which also would have created absorption. I mean, one of the advantages of this sort of scale modeling of Stonehenge is that the, the, as long as it's not very absorbing the stones, it's actually the geometry which really matters because most of the loss of sound energy is from between the stones or into the air. So it's actually getting the geometry right, which is most important. The stones have to be hard and non-absorbing, but you could have made them a <coughs> lot of different ways. So you mentioned there that it was a, a 1 to 12 scale model. Is, was there any particular reason that you chose that scale? Well, a few, few people have suggested it might be because I'm aping spinal tap, but it, no, it wasn't yeah. that. I, <laughs> I mean, for those who know the famous scene, they have a model of Stonehenge made, which is disappointingly small. And it is 1 to 12 scale because they mixed up inches and feet. But that was pure coincidence. Um, we, had, we had to fit it in a test chamber called a semi-anechoic chamber. So this is a, a room which has got very absorbent walls on it. And it was literally, what's the biggest model we could fit in this room? As you get models smaller and smaller, you get problems with things like air absorption. Uh, it gets harder to get loudspeakers that work properly. So you tend to work in the biggest scale you can get away with. So the model's about two and a half meters across, which just about fitted it in our chamber. And that's the reason we came up with 1 to 12 scale. Right, so you just mentioned there that the, uh, the chamber that you use. Could you, could you tell us a bit more about that? What's, what's so special about that? And why was it particularly useful for this sort of research? Well, around Stonehenge, it's sort of open field. So I suppose we could have taken the model and stuck it in an open field. But if you try and measure there, what's going to happen? Well, it might be a windy day. It might be raining. There might be traffic noise. It, you, you don't want to work in those conditions because you're so dependent on factors out of your control. So we bring it inside to this room, which has got a hard floor, but all the walls are covered in these wedges. So, you know, there's these giant sort of grey wedges, which are acoustic foam, which absorb sound very efficiently. So a sound, any sound which went out of the stone circle and hit the walls of the chamber uh, were absorbed, as would happen, you know, in Wiltshire. You know, sound goes out of the stones and then just disappears into the countryside. So it's a really good way of getting controlled environments. You know, it's a very low noise level, very well isolated room without having all the problems of working outdoors. 
so you don't have any um, any of the source sounds that you're using bouncing back off the wall into into the um, model and interfering with. Yeah, you have recordings. to you have to think a lot about these what we, we would call parasitic reflections. So any of the equipment in the room, where well, we had very little equipment in the room, every time we measured, we'd walk into the model, put the microphones and loudspeakers out, walk out, close the two doors which are between us, then do the test. I mean, it was quite laborious. And then if you have any equipment like you know amplifiers, they have to be covered in foam so they're not reflecting stuff. And so you ha you have to work very hard to get rid of all these spurious reflections which wouldn't have been present in Stonehenge. So yeah, that was, sort of leads on nicely to what I was going to ask next. Is about um, what the experimental setup actually looked like. I mean, did you use banks of microphones? Where were they positioned? Where were the sound sources uh, inside the circle, outside, and different bits? Could you could you uh, go into a bit of detail about that? So we we have to work at twelve times the frequency. So you're starting to th work with stuff which is. Um, goes all into the ultrasonic range. So you can't just pick up a, a standard microphone like like we're using to record this conversation with. You have to get, well, they're just smaller. So we use what's called a quarter-inch mic, old-fashioned units, but that's what they're still called. So they're, you know, they're about, what, uh, four mil across. So they're quite tiny little microphones. That they're, they're the easy bit. The loudspeaker is the hard thing to use because you have to find these high-frequency sound sources which aren't generally made. So... Uh, we had to make special sort of loudspeakers. And then, yeah, in terms of what we try to do is we try to measure a lot of positions and we just used our sort of architectural acoustics now and thought, well, what's going to make a difference? So one thing about Stonehenge, which is really interesting, is there's multiple rings of uh, stones. And so it's very easy if you were in there to be hidden behind a stone. And we know if you can't see someone talking, the acoustic is very different to if you can see them. So we would do things like, say, make sure there's a line of sight between the microphone and loudspeaker and then do a position which is equivalent, but the microphone and loudspeaker hidden from each other. So you're just getting the indirect reflection. So we we sort of kind of doled it up in that, and we thought, well, maybe there's focusing in the middle of the, uh, the of the monument. So we tested some middle positions, and then we, you know, so we just got considered lots of different things we were interested in, and that determined where we placed it. I don't know how many places we measured. I was about, I guess, about thirty or forty different places we measured our, uh, in the end. So it's a lot of measurements. So the, the sounds that you were using were were they beyond the range of human hearing? Well, they started in the human range. So because we were testing, I don't know, about down to 100 hertz, which was 12,000 hertz in a, in a model. Um, sorry, 1,200 hertz. I can't do my maths. That's, uh, that's good for a <laughs> physics professor, isn't it? Uh, so 1,200 hertz, that's definitely audible. But it would go up to 70,000 hertz. So that's sort of your dog might get interested or bats, you know, way beyond our hearing. So actually, when you tested it, we pay what's called a sign sweep, which goes... It's sort of a sweeping frequency. And you could hear it to start off with, and then it would disappear but still be going um, because our hearing wouldn't work. And then you you uh, you deconvolve it in a, in a mathematical process called deconvolution, which gets to what we really want, which is called the impulse response. And that's the equivalent is if you go into a room and you had to clap your hands and pick the sound up on the microphone, it's the response of the room to the impulse, the impulsive sound being a hand clap in that case. And you can do some mathematical processing to get that out of a, a sign sweep, which is what we did. Um, so just one one quick point. So I might might be wrong here, but is human hearing is about twenty to twenty thousand hertz? Yeah. So he, so yeah. So typical human hearing goes from twenty hertz to twenty thousand hertz. When we think about room design, we really think about. 100 to maybe 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 hertz. That's the key. That's kind of like the, the keyboard range of a piano. Um, and actually, when you get to my age, things above 
10, 12,000 hertz probably don't exist much more. I can hear them if they're very loud, but I haven't got much hearing left because of, unfortunately, old age. Yeah. <laughs> so did you use, so you mentioned a sine sweep there. So did you use like a very pure sine wave signal or did you try sort of more messier, complicated signals as well? No, the sine sweep, because what you want to do is measure every single frequency. So it steps for every ah, frequency. Sorry, yeah, so on. you get the data at every frequency. Um, and then you can, it's a mass just to get back to the impulse response. You don't use impulses, so you can do it because in general, it's quite hard to make a very short sound, which is very loud. And so in terms of get, trying to get good signal to noise ratio, lots of signal and not much noise, it's easier to have a loudspeaker radiating something continuously. So it's a really common technique. It's, it's kind of ubiquitous now in room acoustics. So once you've got all your, all your recordings and all, all your data, how, how did you go about processing that then? And, and what sort of things were you looking for? Well, once you've got the impulse response, which is the sort of fingerprint, you know, the acoustic sonic fingerprint of a space, then there's various ways we process it to look at you know, how people might respond. So when we design, say, a concert hall, there's a set of parameters that we derive from this impulse response through some calculations, which we know correlate really well with people's hearing and then we sort of kind of work with those parameters. So one of those is reverberation time. So that's, you know, really obvious if you go into cathedral, you go into cathedral, speak, and, and the sound rattles around for a long time before dying away to nothing. The time it takes the sound to die away to nothing is called the reverberation time. It's the oldest parameter in architectural acoustic design. So that's the first thing we, we calculated. And we got reverberation time, mid-frequency, about 0.6, 0.7 seconds. And you can start thinking, oh, well, what, what's that like? And it's, I mean, the nearest space, I mean, it isn't, it's quite unique, you know. There isn't spaces quite like this. Um, but uh, maybe a cinema? Cinemas have got a little bit of reverberation, but they're quite large, but they're actually quite dead because they have quite a lot of absorbent round. So definitely in this space, you can hear your voice being supported by reflections. Musical notes would be slightly enhanced but it's quite subtle is the kind of effect you get in Stonehenge. Yeah, so we mentioned earlier that there's been sort of several different reconfigurations of the kind of architecture, if you like, um, of Stonehenge over the years. So how, how did you go about approaching that? Well, we didn't actually set up all the different configurations, um, partly really because of time. It's very laborious to set up and disassemble a model because it all has to be sealed up and things like that it's quite quite tedious so what we actually did was we took elements out so we go oh you've got all these amazing trilithons with their sort of caps on top the lintels well take them off what difference does it make if they weren't there and we did that for all the different parts of the of the monument to see what they what purpose they were serving and the sort of thing we found was um the blue stones didn't if you know took them all out it didn't make much difference to acoustics so if you go to stonehenge the, the obvious things are these big uprights with lintels on tops so there's the they're the trilithons but actually there's a was a lot of standing stones which are just like normal ones you'd see in a stone circle maybe one and a half two meters tall so they're actually you know relatively large um and uh, there were about 80 90 of those there was a lot of those around you take all of those out it doesn't really change the acoustics very much. And so it kind of tells us, you know, we know these were rearranged. At some point, they were in a double circle, potentially, and then in two single circles. And so we know they played around with them, but no one would have been able to hear the difference. And, and that kind of says to me that, okay, acoustics is really interesting in this space, but it probably didn't drive what they were trying to do in terms of designing it or how they decided to lay it out. So um, you sort of going slightly back, we were mentioning the uh, the frequency sweep so could you just sort of give us a sort of say um, like a acoustic 101 on 
How how's what makes them the different frequencies travel and reflect and diffract differently, you know, higher frequencies as opposed to lower frequencies? If you listen back to our recordings in the space, so you can do what's called oralization and you can add some speech to it and hear what it sounds like. What you'll hear is it's much bassier. So the voice, you can hear the effects of the stones, but you can hear there's much more bass in people's voices. It's a bit like going into your bathroom and singing. And that's because how sound interacts with these stones varies with frequency. So you've got various effects going on. Uh, for example, the ground is a bit more absorbing at high frequency, so that sound tends to die away quicker. But you've also got the fact that, depending on the size of the wave, the, what we'd call a wavelength, how it interacts with the stones is very different. So if you have a sound wave which is roughly the same size as the stone, you get a sort of scattering effect. Um, if the sound wave is very much smaller, which is what happens at high frequencies, you just get a sort of direct reflection, you know, angle of instance equals angle of reflection, something you might have learned uh, the law of reflection back in school. So at, at low frequencies, sound struggles to get between the gaps of these very large uprights because the gaps are a bit too small and it gets constrained. And so you get this bass boost where at high frequency, it's easier for it to disappear down the gap because the sound of the sound wave is smaller than the gap. So First, you know, first bounce, half the energy is gone because about half the area is is air. Effectively, it's not stone. And so it decays away much faster. Okay, so let's sort of <clears throat> move on a bit to the to the uh to the brass tacks, to the findings. So what what are the sort of key things that you found? Like, you know, say um I'm the one twelfth size Jason, and I go and walk walk into your model and I perhaps I sing a song or something. What what happens? What, how, what, how do I experience that? And what happens to the sound? So the first thing that happens to the sound is normally you get uh, you get this amplification due to the reflections, and it's you know it's about it depends on which what you're looking at. But it's about four decibels in the model on average, and you can imagine a case where I don't know you're trying to talk and your speech is only just audible. I mean you're talking along a d large distance potentially in this place maybe. I don't know, 30 meters is the furthest you could be apart. Maybe there's a bit of noise from the crowd. And that four decibels can be just enough to lift your voice to make a lot more of the speech audible. It's particularly true if you're if you were doing facing away. So if you were actually not facing the person you're talking to, say the crowd was big enough, you couldn't face all of them at once, then actually this these reflections are really useful in sort of kind of evening out the fact that you know, the voice is is more powerful in some directions than in others. So the amplification is the first thing, and that will make music sound better as well. Anything louder tends to sound a bit better. Um, and But then you also get this reverberation, um, which in terms of music, we know that reverberation improves modern music. Uh, we don't know exactly what music they may or may not be making, but we know in general music sounds better with some reverberation. Even pop music has lots of reverberation on it, even if it's recorded in just a studio. So we can imagine it would improve the quality of the music because it does it does nowadays. So is it, I mean, this is perhaps a tough question, but is it your feeling that um, these acoustic properties are there by design? I, I think that's fairly unlikely and for, for several reasons, one of which is because we know the reconfigurations didn't change the acoustics in a particularly audible manner. So even if they thought they were changing it for the better, it was, there's no sign that it did. So um, I, I think it's much more likely they were designing for other reasons and then, you know, it had an acoustic and then they will exploit it. So I think whether they designed it or not for 
sound, they would be a bit daft not to exploit the sound that's there. So if I wanted to have a conversation with someone, it would be very hard for me to stand in the middle and you to stand outside the stone circle. That would be a much harder conversation than if you stood inside the stone circle. So it kind of implies to me that rituals, for the people who had to understand what was being said, you, those, those people would be gathered inside the circle. It's more likely than they would be outside just because it would just be harder to communicate. So it, was, it wouldn't surprise me if it influenced how people used the space. But as in deliberate design, I think that's unlikely. Yeah. So an- another thing that um, came that I wrote about a-, a while ago was this idea that the, you mentioned, the, I think it's the blue stones that you mentioned earlier, were had certain sort of, um, like if you struck them, they, they'd make like gong light sounds, like a gamelan or something mm. like that. Is is that something that's 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 credible, or is is that a bit of speculation? So we certainly know that rock gongs have been used for a long time. Um, they're called lithophones, and we certainly know in in caves there's evidence that there were people striking um, cave formations before Stonehenge was built. So it's certainly a sort of a technology, maybe and not quite the right word, but certainly a musical instrument that has been around for for thousands of years. So yes, potentially they could have struck the blue stones. They seem to be of a sort of uh, a type that rings because some stones ring and some stones don't. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence in terms of percussive marks or anything. So one thing you do get with lithophones, which makes it very clear they've been used, is when you see lots of hammer marks on them. Um, uh, But the other problem you get with lithophones is dating them. Um, so even if there were hammer marks on the Stonehenge bluestones, when were they made? And so there's there's that kind of problem. The reason we can date some of the lith- lithophones that are in caves is because there have been caves that have been blocked, and therefore we know that the, the, uh, the percussion marks are very old <laughs> because the cave was only found later on and revealed in modern times. So these just um, a sort of bit of a lithophone tangent where i just think that's interesting where, where have these things been found and like are they, are they how sophisticated are they are they tuned for example or, or is, they just make a single tone or something i don't i don't know well i know if a modern lithophone has has been tuned i mean the, the famous ones or the well-known ones are probably there's there's rock gongs which in places like the serengeti you'll find them around various places which are literally just rocks lying around near, near you know which they hit and then um you find ones in Indian temples, which have obviously been made to be hit and make particular notes. They've actually they have been shaped. Um, so you, you do get ones which have been shaped, but generally um, there's the really old ones. Just to see, seem to be they are what they are. They make a gong sound, and they're not particularly tuned to anything. Okay, and another thing that um, I've actually never, unfortunately, I've never visited Stonehenge, but a lot of people have tell me it makes a strange humming tone as the wind blows through it i wondered what your thoughts were on that is, is that just a complete accident or is it's a bit but people assign all sorts of reasons to this i've heard but um not entirely what i think, think about it myself well i've, I've yet to <laughs> hear anyone who's recorded it and and definitely witnessed it so there's a there's an old oh, okay. there's an old uh, quote from thomas hardy in tessa the d'urvervilles about about the stone about stonehenge humming and that has been picked up as being, oh, right, so maybe in the, back in those days it used to hum because of the wind. Um, it was still a ruin back in those days, although it's changed a little bit. Um, there were still a lot of stones missing. Um, and as far as I know, no one in Wiltshire goes along to this place and hears it hum in the wind. Um, 
I mean, I suppose it could do it. I and mean, we know it happens with modern buildings. So the, the, the one near me, mine is the, near me is the Beetham Tower in Manchester, um, which is a louvre on top, which does a spectacularly hum when there's high winds um, and gets really, really loud. Um, but whether these stones, which were amorphous in shapes, would have created the, the effects, and they're all a little bit hickledy-pickledy and a bit different, I, I think it's unlikely... I mean, I'd love to test it. I'd love to make a, a model and stick it in one of our, our wind uh, uh, wind tunnels. But that's a, that's a project for another day. Okay, that's that leads on nicely to um, my final question. Then, have you got any any plans to investigate this model further, or in fact, other other work on the acoustic properties of Stonehenge at all? One of the disappointments when I did the actual full measurements is we tried to measure the effect of occupation. Now, what happens when people are inside the circle? Because we're quite absorbent, our clothing is quite absorbent, and you'd expect it would deaden the space and make the acoustics less good. And we literally, a week before doing the measurements, thought, this would be a good idea. Let's make some 1 to 12 scale model people. We had no time to test them. We literally, I literally made them overnight on a couple of nights, and we didn't make them absorbing enough. So when we came to test them after the fact, the the you know, the effect was too small. Um, so one of the things I'd like to do is make some proper one to 12 scale model people with the right kind of absorption and see what effect they have on the acoustics. And um, because we talk about this amplification, it could disappear if you had a lot of people in that space. And that's something I'd like to test. That was Professor Trevor Cox, an acoustic engineer based at the University of Salford, talking to Jason Goodyear about his latest research investigating the acoustic properties of Stonehenge. You can find out more about the mysteries of Stonehenge at sciencefocus.com. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine for more amazing science and tech. This month, we've got a special report looking into everything you need to know about COVID-19 immunity. As always, let us know what you think of the show with a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find out more about the mysteries of Stonehenge at sciencefocus.com. And don't forget to pick up the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine for more amazing science and tech. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.